I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode three, Cape of Storms. In the year 6685 of the creation of the world and of Christ's 1485, the excellent, illustrious King John II of Portugal did direct this land to be discovered, and this Pedro to be set up by Diogo Cao, a cavalero of his household. Translation of a Portuguese inscription on a stone pillar located at Cape Cross, Namibia, Africa. Welcome to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast. Join me as we journey through the history of the early modern period. few things before we start. A note on pronunciation. We will be encountering many different names in many different languages, and I will do my utmost to pronounce words and names the best I can. I do ask for some forgiveness in advance if I miss the mark. In some cases, I will use the name as it is in the proper language, but for the majority of names, I will defer to the Latinized or English versions of the names. This will make it simpler on me and the flow of the narrative. The other thing is we do not have any logs, journals, or other first-hand primary sources regarding many of the Portuguese voyages of exploration, including those of Bartolomeu Diaz. Much of what we know comes from 16th century Portuguese historian Joao de Barros. Pieces have also been gathered from other contemporary sources. This lack of source material is due to two things. The Portuguese monarchy did not want any written records in the desire to keep their knowledge secret from competitors. And those records which might have existed were destroyed during the Great Lisbon Earthquake in 1755. There is a link in the episode description to family trees of the royal houses of Portugal. In the 15th century, it was the House of Aviz, started by King Pedro I. Prince Henry the Navigator did not live long enough to see the complete fruition of what he started back in 1419 for he died in 1460. When their father, John I, died, Henry's brother Edward succeeded to the throne, and Edward would continue the Portuguese crown's policies of expansion along the western coast of Africa. King Edward died in 1438, leaving the throne to his six-year-old son, Alfonso. When Alfonso V came of age, he concentrated on solidifying Portuguese control over North Africa and became entangled in a war of succession with the neighboring kingdom of Castile. Therefore, the mantle of Prince Henry the Navigator fell upon Alfonso V's son, John. The young prince took on the role his granduncle played in encouraging further efforts in Africa. When John ascended the throne as John II in 1481, his father left him two major obstacles, no money 
and an ambitious and powerful nobility. It did not take him long to resolve these issues and set the royal affairs in order again. John II was described as a man who commanded others and who was commanded by no one. Portuguese historians would give him the moniker of the perfect prince. And his rival, Queen Isabella of Castile, would simply refer to him as the man. At the time of his ascension, the furthest the Portuguese had explored down the African coast was just south of the equator, at Cape St. Catherine Gabon. Even before becoming king, John had reaped the financial benefits of the Guinea trade. But no effort had previously been put forth to expand this trade, nor protect it from foreign interference, in particular, the Spanish. One of the first steps the king took was to dispatch royal ships to protect Portuguese interests in the region. On January 20th, 1482, the foundations of the castle of St. Jorge da Mina were begun in present-day Elmina, Ghana. This would be the first permanent European settlement on what is referred to as the Gold Coast of West Africa. Castle would serve as the heart of Portuguese activity in the region until the Dutch took it over in 1637. With these immediate concerns addressed, King John II took up the work of his grand uncle. Diogo Cao, Bartolomeu Diaz, and Vasco da Gama. There is no record of why these three men were chosen by King John II to continue the effort of seeking a maritime route to India. The men did have many things in common, though. None of them came from any noble pedigree but their family served the crown admirably and showed a great degree of loyalty to the royal family. The men themselves were knights within the various royal households, and each had proved their worthiness in action either against Spain or in North Africa. And each man had shown a talent for seamanship and the ability to command. King John II was intent in achieving two objectives. One was to find a way around the southern tip of Africa as a direct route to India. The other was to find the mythical Christian king, Prester John. For the latter, he sent two men, Pero da Cavilla and Afonso da Paiva, to Egypt. Both men were experienced diplomats and they were both charged with finding sources of cinnamon and other spices. Secretly, though, they were to explore a possible inland route to find Prester John. In the meantime, the king asked Diogo Cao to find the southern tip of Africa and the sea route to India. Cao sailed from Lisbon probably in June of 1482, he made a stop at St. Jorge da Mina for supplies and then headed southward along the coast. He left behind Cape St. Catherine and sailed into uncharted territory. Progress was slow. The currents in this region trend northward, 
while the winds trend more to the south. This, along with heavy surf, made navigation difficult. Cow needed to rely on judicial use of land and sea breezes. At some point, he realized they were nearing the mouth of a large river. For despite being 20 miles out to sea, he discovered a mix of salt and fresh water. He had found the mouth of the Congo River. Cow was the first Portuguese explorer to carry with him pedras. Up until this time, the Portuguese were content in using wooden crosses or simply carving into a tree to mark their presence. King John II decided to introduce stone pillars, pedros, that were adorned with a cross and emblazoned with the Portuguese royal coat of arms. An inscription in both Latin and Portuguese gave the date, the king's name, and the commander of the voyage. These were to be a more permanent display of Portuguese claims to new territories, as well as be waypoints for those who would come after. Four of Cao's pedras have been discovered in Suto, and they provide key evidence about Cao's and then Diaz's voyages. Cao set up one pedra on the south side of the Congo River on April 23, 1483. He continued south and placed a second pedra on August 28th at what is Cape St. Mary on the coast of Angola. But for some reason, Cow believed that he had reached the southernmost limit of the African continent. He felt it was here that the coast began to turn eastward. Cow returned to Portugal with high hopes. While Cow was gone, in the summer of 1483, a certain man from Genoa arrived at the court of King John II. His name was Christopher Foro Colombo. Christopher Columbus. He was there to propose an alternative route to India. Columbus's proposal was based on the work of a Florentine, Paolo Toscanelli. The premise was, if the earth was round, then it seemed reasonable that India could be reached by going either east or west. Columbus proposed sailing directly westward, feeling that this would be shorter than around Africa. The king was intrigued by this idea and was taking it into consideration when Cow returned in April 1484. Cow was hailed on his return by the elated king and was granted a pension and a noble title. Cow's news and the criticism of King John II's own experts dashed any hopes Columbus had of getting a commission from the Portuguese. King's own mathematicians believed Toscanelli's measurements of the Earth's circumference was off by at least 25%. The Portuguese historian João de Barros wrote that the king because he saw this Cristóvão Colombo to be boastful and pushy in talking up his abilities, 
and deluded and fanciful about the island of Japan gave him little credence. Columbus then went to the Portuguese rival court in Spain to lobby Isabella and Ferdinand into backing his proposal. Cal was certain that he would succeed. He set out once again in early summer of 1485 with more Pedros. The king was so overly confident that he sent an emissary to Pope Innocent VIII declaring imminent victory that they were only a few days' passage to the Promitorium Prasum, the southernmost tip of Africa. Everyone was going to be very, very disappointed. On his way back on his first voyage, Cow escorted four natives back to Portugal and left some of his men to remain with the local tribal king. This was a common practice by the Portuguese and it acted like a cultural exchange program. This was meant to build relations with the indigenous populations that the Portuguese encountered. The four natives were returned to their homeland at the mouth of the Congo upon Cow's second voyage down the coast. This second trip began in 1485. Cow continued past where he had stopped on the previous voyage, but the coast seemed to continue southward endlessly. He set up his first Pedro at what is now Cabo Negro, Angola, at about 15 degrees, 40 minutes, 36 seconds south. His second one was erected at Cape Cross on the Namibian coastline. Cow eventually gave up upon reaching the area around Sarapada, just north of the Tropic of Capricorn. This is the last we hear of Diogo Cow. Part of the problem was the reliance on maps that were modifications of the Greek geographer Ptolemy. Ptolemy lived and worked during the 2nd century CE, but his ideas continued to be influential even up to the 15th century. Because of this, it is believed that the Portuguese underestimated the width of the African continent, leading to them being overly optimistic. Undaunted, King John II continued to pursue the route around Africa. He was also buoyed by a smattering of reports about a possible inland route. But this would eventually result in nothing. The king wasted no time and appointed Bartolomeu Diaz to command an expedition in 1486. Diaz was a knight within the king's household and had served as the superintendent of the royal warehouses. Not much is known of his pedigree, but he seemed to be a seaman of considerable experience. There are no accounts of his voyage. Using geographical names, the three Pedros we know he erected, and the historian Barros, who wrote nearly 60 years after the events, we are able to piece together Diaz's journey down the coast. It is likely Diaz left Lisbon in late July 1487. He followed Cow's route along the coastline of Africa, past Cape Cross. 
he pushed further south, naming capes and bays after saints' days. Gulf of St. Marta, St. Tome, St. Victoria, St. Christopher. The ships fought against that same southwest winds and that same northward trending current. Somewhere along the Namibian coast, they decided to leave the ship carrying supplies, along with nine men to guard it. The rest of the fleet continued onward. Then something remarkable happened. Possibly near modern Literates Bay, Diaz turned the ships away from the shore, lowered sail, and headed out to the west and towards open ocean. No one knows for certain why this decision was made. Was it planned in advance? Or was it a moment of intuition based on experience? Diaz knew that to get back to Portugal from the Guinea coast, one needed to tack west away from shore and make a wide loop in the central Atlantic to be carried back to Europe. Maybe something similar was at work this far south. Barros, our historian, on the other hand, suggests a storm forced Diaz into putting out to sea. The weather forced them to run 13 days with sail at half-mast. Whatever logic motivated Diaz to take a gamble, it would be one of the most pivotal moments in history. The Portuguese caravels traveled for 13 days and nearly a thousand miles until they realized that the weather had turned colder. Unbeknownst to them, they had reached the latitudes near Antarctica. At about 38 degrees south, Diaz's gamble paid off. Winds became more variable, and he changed direction and headed eastward thinking they would run into the never-ending coast of Africa. After several days of not spotting any land, Diaz tacked northward. On February 3, 1488, they made landfall at what Diaz would dub the Bahia de Vacaros, Bay of the Cowherds. Today it is known as Muscle Bay, South Africa. What Diaz didn't realize at the time was that he had sailed past the southernmost tip of Africa. He didn't realize he had succeeded in what the Portuguese were attempting to do for over eight decades. He continued eastward along the coast for another 200 miles. But his crew was exhausted, and they were dangerously short on supplies. Diaz gave in to the demands of his men and he ordered the ships turned around. As a chronicler would go on to say, Diaz, quote, saw the land of India, but could not enter it, like Moses in the promised land, end quote. On the way back westward, Diaz stopped at a rocky promontory situated at the of the Cape Peninsula. It is the point where the warm Mozambique-Agulis current of the Indian Ocean converges with the cold Benguela current coming up from Antarctica. It is famous for its stormy weather 
and rough seas. Legend has it that Diaz named this point Cape of Storms. This is the Cape of Good Hope. But that is not the southernmost tip of Africa. That is situated at Cape Agulhas, about 90 miles or 150 kilometers to the east-southeast. But even into modern times, the Cape of Good Hope would serve as the major landmark for navigation and represented the division between the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. And what was this promised land that Diaz was denied access to? In the next episode, I'll explore the geography and economy of the Indian Ocean Basin prior to the Portuguese arrival. Links to additional resources can be found in the episode description. Comments and feedback are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. Visit my blog at itakehistory.com and on Facebook at I Take History with My Coffee. If you know anyone who would also enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thank you for listening. Music.